Every day, the news announces a potential breakthrough in treatment for cancer or some other disease. What keeps these potentials from becoming reality? You're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, attorney and doctor Bruce Bloom, president and chief science officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that drives cures to patients through repurposing current therapies for new uses. And my guest is Dr. Stephen Crone, associate professor of molecular genetics and cell biology and investigator in the Ludwig Center for Metastasis Research at the University of Chicago. Dr. Crone and I are discussing the cancer research his laboratory has undertaken and what trials and tribulations they encountered along the way. Steve, welcome to Reach MD. Thanks a lot, Bruce. It's great to talk to you again. So tell us uh, about your research background. Where'd you do your undergrad and what were your interests? And then where'd you do your MD and PhD? And what's the focus of your current research? So um, I grew up as child of physicians in Philadelphia, and uh, I spent a lot of time hanging around uh, University of Pennsylvania, where I eventually did my undergraduate degree. Started out as a researcher, even as a preteen, I think. And so when I got to college, I was already set on a career as a medical researcher. And if it weren't for what, uh, after I met all those uh, pre-meds that turned me off from medicine for a while, that's what I would have done pretty straightforward, gone to medical school and become a uh, part-time researcher, full-time clinician. But what happened to me was along the way, I learned a lot about science and uh, did an engineering degree at Penn, a master's. And I then went off to Stanford, where I did an MD and a PhD, and my PhD was in biophysics, basically. I was learning about how muscle proteins worked. I didn't know what to do with my career, and I went off then to what's called a postdoctoral fellowship, uh, where I just did pure research for a few years after my PhD, and I learned to do genetics and molecular biology and lots of things that I'd never learned before. And so I started my job here at the University of Chicago with no real plan my current research is really what I've been doing for the last few months, but what I do is try to understand how signals tell cells to respond to stresses like DNA damage. So tell us about your idea for researching H2AX. Where did this idea come from? What's the potential promise? And what is H2AX? That really relates to this idea of how DNA damage signals uh, are made by cells to tell them, instruct them what to do. So H2AX is the X form of H2A. H2A is a histone. Histones are the proteins around which DNA is wound, and that allows the meter of DNA in each cell to be wound up so tightly that it fits in a nucleus of a cell that's only 10, 20 microns across. That's uh, pretty impressive. When DNA damage occurred, this packaging protein was modified with a phosphate group. It was phosphorylated and the phosphorylation and looked very much like a signal telling the cell that DNA damage had occurred. What was so exciting was that the damage is to the DNA, but the signal appears on a protein bound to the DNA. So as soon as I saw that, my colleagues and I, one of whom is a radiation oncologist, Ralph Wexelbaum, got very, very interested in what could that signal mean. So what was the potential promise? I mean, what was this excitement about as you thought of therapeutics for cancer or other things? Yeah, so, you know, a signal doesn't mean anything by itself, but what cells do when they have DNA damage is several things. One is they try to repair the damage, of course, but DNA repair can take hours, and a cell might be in a part of its 
uh, proliferation cycle where it wants to, for example, separate its chromosomes to make daughter cells. And what cells can do is perform what are called checkpoint arrests. And in checkpoints, they stop the cell cycle. They stop cell proliferation to wait for repair. And there was a hint from even the earliest times that H2AX was found to be modified with by phosphate to be phosphorylated, that maybe H2AX was en route to this stopping, this checkpoint, in order to allow repair to occur and cells to regain uh, their normal structure. Now, what we immediately thought was if we could interrupt this H2AX signal, maybe we could force cells to ignore the DNA damage, go through cell division, and perhaps die by losing critical DNA. So immediately we were thinking this would make a wonderful target. So you got started investigating H2AX, and what problems did you run into? Well, you know, all things start out exciting and then reality hits. And so the first hypothesis we had was if we could hide from the cell this signal by maybe masking the H2AX so the cell could no longer use its uh, sensing proteins to find the DNA damage, we might see an immediate effect. And, you know, that was actually a home run. What we did was we took a small part of H2AX, the part that gets phosphorylated, and we put that into cells by, uh, you know, a trick that you could imagine might work like a drug. And we took that peptide, put it into cells, and we were able to transform cancer cells that, at least in vitro, are radio-resistant into cells that are once again restored to radio-sensitive, as if we were able to take a radio-resistant tumor and render it sensitive to radiation again. And uh, we published that paper. It was not a a really great paper, but it was very uh, suggestive. And so that was work with Dr. Wexelbaum at the university. And so that was the launch point. But then, of course, things get difficult. And what we wanted to do was see if we could get away from using a peptide, which is not a good drug, to small molecules. And that's where the project that Partnership for Cures invested in started. Let's go one step back. Certain cells, cancer cells, are radioprotected. What does that really mean? What do you think is going on there? Well, you know, I'm not a radiation oncologist, but I spend a lot of time uh, talking to them. And it seems to me that there are several things that radiation oncologists take into account. One is if a cancer is in a particular location, it might be easier or harder to treat. But another issue is exactly what kind of cancer it is and whether it has been treated before. So a cancer that has not been selected by chemotherapy or radiation to be resistant often responds very well. But if someone recurs, if cancer grows out after treatment, often that cancer no longer responds to the chemotherapy or radiation. So the real challenge often with people who have advanced cancer, recurrent cancer, or metastasis is to treat them with the tools on hand, which are radiation and chemotherapy, even though their cancer is now resistant. The mechanisms of resistance remain very, very hard to understand. Do we think, though, that maybe this whole idea of DNA repair is part of what makes them radio-resistant? I think you're exactly right. Uh, The bottom line is that if you measure DNA repair rates in radio-resistant or chemo-resistant tumors, at least in vitro, in, in tissue culture, it seems like many of them do repair faster. But that's not the only thing you see. And so part of it is that when they have damage, they no longer die. There's a process called apoptosis or programmed cell death, which normal cells do when they're damaged beyond repair. Often cancer cells will just grow right through it. So you mentioned that uh, peptides aren't ideal as drugs. Why is that? Well, so peptides actually, I think many of 
your physicians will say, no, peptides are wonderful drugs. Insulin is one of the most powerful medications that's available. It's a little hard to give people because you have to inject it, but uh, it works wonderfully once it's in the bloodstream. But everyone should remember that proteins and peptides do not cross plasma membranes, cell membranes, easily. Only very, very small molecules, which are a little bit more soluble in uh, membranes, which are fatty, versus just plasma, which is more like water, can serve as good drugs. And often, if you want to give a drug by mouth, it has to be a small molecule and very rough and tough. The stomach is full of proteases, and peptides will get eaten up. So we want to get away from peptides, but maintain the structure or the function of these peptides that we tested. So what happened when you did the small molecules? You know, the bottom line is that small molecules come in hundred thousands or millions at a time. That's how drug companies find them, because it's very hard to guess what kind of small molecule you really want. So what we had to do was figure out how to change our test for effectiveness from something we could do with two or three samples, a control and maybe a couple of test samples, to something we could do with thousands. And so the challenge was to be able to look at well after well after well after well in a uh, large-scale test, uh, very much like what drug companies do, to see if we could block H2AX function. And I have to tell you that we tried pretty hard, not hard enough, and we still don't have a way to do that. So we got stuck at at the assay step. So it's not that you don't have a small molecule, you just don't know if you have a small molecule or not because you don't know how to run the test. Right. In fact, I'm absolutely sure from what other people do that we would find a reasonably large number of molecules that would probably come up as hits in our assay if we had one. The challenge is usually to get from the hits to the ones that are really specific, that is working the way that only on H2AX and not other parts of the cell, and then that the next step, which is beyond what we do, is for a drug company to figure out how to take that molecule and turn it into something that you could actually give people, which wouldn't hurt them uh, and might work specifically as a radiosensitizer or chemosensitizer. So it's almost like we know in the freezer we have molecules that might work. We just can't figure out which one. Where would you say you are in the process? Are you stuck in moving forward? Are you stuck in moving on to something else? Well, I think we're taking a parallel path. We're still building the assay, and we're, but we're doing it in a much more clever way. We had thought that we would do it by using an antibody that recognizes the modified form of H2AX and use that antibody to look at cells after we had um, destroyed them, basically made them permeable so that proteins could get in and out and see whether their H2AX was intact or not, the signal was intact. But that's probably not a good way to do it. And so what we've done is we've begun to make proteins that are autofluorescent because they have green fluorescent protein attached to them. I wish I had time to tell you all about that. It's very exciting. But you can actually see these proteins by their fluorescence in living cells. And so we hope to track the appearance of fluorescence at the H2AX foci, the dots of H2AX, at sites of DNA damage, and follow them that way. If you have a molecule that works, the cells will glow or won't glow? That's a good question. So we have two ways of thinking about it. If a molecule works by preventing DNA repair, the cells will glow. You'll see green dots where the DNA damage occurred, where the radiation hit, but those green dots will never go away because the DNA damage cannot be repaired. If we have a molecule that blocks H2AX function by making it either leave its normal site 
of around the DNA damage or never form the green dots, we'll see that by cells that do not form green dots even in the face of radiation. Either type of molecule might be a very powerful way of blocking the signal from DNA damage to the cell. Medical miracles happen in research every day around the globe, but the outcomes are not always what the researchers expect. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Stephen Crone, Associate Professor of Molecular Genetics and Cell Biology, and investigator in the Ludwig Center for Metastasis Research at the University of Chicago for talking to us about the promise and pitfalls of medical research. I'm attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that repurposes existing treatments for new uses. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.